Hi, this is WMG Unlocked, a new podcast from the William Morris Gallery. You can't come to us right now, so we're going to bring the gallery to you through interviews and discussion on our collection, displays, special exhibitions and all kinds of interesting things related to William Morris. If you've got any suggestions for what you'd like to see covered on WMG Unlocked, please feel free to contact us on Twitter. We're at WM Gallery. In this, our very first episode, we're looking at our collection, The Beating Heart of the William Morris Gallery. And to guide us, I'm pleased to welcome our senior curator, Roisin Inglesby. Roisin, perhaps you could start by telling us what you and the other curators are actually getting up to during lockdown. Yeah, so we're actually quite busy. Um, Even though the doors of the museum are closed, um, we're still working really hard to engage our audiences. So we're doing, we're putting a lot of work into doing um, online content. Uh, So that includes content for Twitter, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, We are doing regular lunchtime talks uh, via Zoom, so we've been doing research for those. Um, And we're generally trying to think about how to keep people interested in the gallery and how to get the gallery's collections out there while we're not physically open. We're also working a lot on um, behind the scenes things. So even though we don't have exhibitions on display at the moment, we're actually always working about two or three years in advance with exhibitions. So there's an awful lot to do for the forthcoming exhibitions for 2021 uh, and even forward into 2022. So we're still working on doing research, uh, creating object lists, securing loans, um, that kind of thing. Um, And then finally, we're also thinking about the permanent collection. So uh, although most of what the public see is through our exhibition programme, actually um, the the meaning of the word curator is to care. It's not just about uh, presenting objects, it's also about caring for them. So we're thinking about the the health and um, well-being of the long-term collection, of the uh, permanent collection and the long-term well-being. Uh, And we are uh, thinking about um, more cataloguing, making more precise records, doing research, uh, improving our documentation um, and also getting those records online uh, via Google Arts and Culture so that there'll be something to show for this period of lockdown um, in, a, in, the, in the scope of an increased, increased online presence. So obviously keeping very busy, we're here to talk about the William Morris Gallery collection. Could you start with the basics? What's actually in it? Sure. So Morris was a polymath um, and the the collection certainly represents the fact that he had interests in all manner of things. So in our collection, we have about 10,000 objects in total and, and that includes textiles, wallpaper, furniture, uh, ceramics, stained glass, design drawings, uh, paintings, sculpture, prints, uh, pretty much any kind of media you can think of. Um, Also, uh, as well as some kind of personalia and sort of objects associated with Morris, so locks of hair, uh, his satchel, you know, those sorts of personal things that don't fall into any kind of artistic category. As I say, we have about 10,000 objects and the majority of these objects uh, came in three waves um, in the early to mid 20th century. So the idea of having a museum dedicated to the life of William Morris was first mooted in about 1914 um, and the Walthamstow uh, Antiquarian Society started collecting objects associated with Morris. 
1934, uh, this was the centenary of Morris's birth, uh, the, the celebrations around that event led to the um, proposal, a more concrete proposal to have a museum dedicated to Morris in Walthamstow. And shortly afterwards, um, Frank Brangwyn, who was a, an artist and printmaker and had also been an apprentice of Morris as a young man, he donated a large collection of his own work and work that he owned by other people. And that, along with a large donation by Arthur Haygate McMurdo, who was also um, a sort of an acolyte of Morris. They, those two donations together formed the core collection um, of the museum. Since then, we've also collected other objects, um, but those two bequests really form, form the, main, uh, the main core collections. And they focus on Morris, of course, but also on work by his immediate circle. So people like Philip Webb, Edward Byrne-Jones, um, Morris's daughter May, uh, May Morris, um, and also maybe lesser known people who worked for Morris & Co, such as Kathleen Kersey, Kate Faulkner, George Jack, um, we also have McMurdo's own work. Uh, McMurdo was, uh, he founded something called the Century Guild, which was one of the early crafts guilds uh, in Morris's image. We have a, a great number of designs, furniture, textiles uh, from Century Guild. And also Brangwyn was a very well-known printmaker. So we have a very large collection of Brangwyn's own prints. So there are already 10,000 objects. Is that number growing? Are you still acquiring new objects? Yes, we are still acquiring. Um, we acquire relatively slowly um, because um, while some things do come to us through donation, other things have to be purchased. Um, and of course, you know, it takes time um, and energy to to source the funds uh, to to purchase objects. Um, but for example, uh, fairly recently, in the last couple of years, uh, we acquired a embroidery by Bessie Burden. And Bessie Burden was um, Jane Morris's sister, so William Morris's sister-in-law. She was a very skilled embroiderer. Uh, she worked for the, the Royal School of Needlework. Um, and actually, she was so well known that there was a stitch named after her, the Burden Stitch. And this um, embroidery, it's part of an, an embroidered um, casket. It's a panel for an embroidered casket. And it shows an angel with wings and a symbol, um, you know, symbols, you know, like a musical instrument, symbols. And uh, it's based on a Morris design um, from several years earlier. So it shows how within Morris's own circle, um, the same ideas and the same motifs were reused in different media uh, and recreated um, by different artists and different designers. So that's one example of something that we've acquired recently. Um, in terms of actually, you know, the, the scope of things that we acquire, the museum's mission is quite simple. It's uh, to, you know, preserve and um, uh, to preserve the life and work of William Morris and also to uh, show and share his work, um, you know, amongst amongst the general public. And so we collect um, work that is either by Morris, by Morris and Co, by people in Morris's circle uh, and also people within the slightly larger arts and crafts movement. We don't collect everything um, that we that is offered to us or that we can find um, within that. That's partially because we want to make sure that what we 
we have is representative of the the best of Morris's work, um, and also you know there are limits to what we can what we can store, what we can look after, and what we can show. So there's no point in just acquiring everything that comes on the market. Um, we need to be selective about it. And if we have several examples of say you know a certain textile design, there is no need for us to collect you know every example that we find. So it's about having a good balance between what is representative of his work, what is the best of his work, um, and what we can legitimately look after and show people. Could you give us an idea of how you find new acquisitions? The uh, Bessie Burden embroidery that you mentioned, for example, how did you discover that? Yes, so this is a really nice story, actually. Um, So these days, the vast majority of objects relating to Morris come through the art market. Uh, Some come from people's personal collections, but the majority, you know, since Morris has been has been dead for a long time now, um, you know, the things have been passed down and they've kind of dispersed on the open market. However, the Bessie Burden embroidery actually came from a connection, a personal connection to Morris. It belonged to the wife of Morris's great nephew. Um, And so uh, this is quite unusual. Morris had two daughters, but neither of them had any children. So the direct family line was extinguished um, when when May Morris died in 1938. Um, And so the the extended Morris family, Morris did have eight brothers and sisters who survived to adulthood. So there are descendants, but again, there's there's not many of them um, left anymore. So it was really great to have this connection. So it came, uh, as I said, through the wife of um, Morris's great nephew, um, and then we were able to purchase it with help from the friends of the William Morris Gallery and the um, the Art Fund, and then it was conserved um, thanks to the generosity of the Decorative Arts Society. So it was a real um, group effort to get this object, um, but it's really nice to have something with that personal family connection. You mentioned earlier something very interesting, that the root of the word curator is to care. Could you describe some of the challenges there are in caring for the collection? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the majority of the objects in our collection are at least 100 years old. Many of them are probably more like 150 years old at this stage. Um, And so, like anything old, you know, one does have to be careful of how you look after it. So, the the main challenges um, are environmental controls. So, um, it's important that objects are kept at very stable environmental conditions. So, this is about 20 degrees uh, and about sort of 50% 50% humidity, give or take. Um, and so you you do find that if objects are kept in very fluctuating conditions, um, it's very bad, especially for wood, which you know expands and contracts and cracks. Uh, it's bad for works on paper as well. So you know we we have to be very careful to keep things at a very stable temperature and humidity. And so we have a climate controlled storeroom uh, where the majority of our objects are kept safely. Um, we have to be careful of pests, um, of course, just like in in our homes, um, moths. Um, are, are, you know, they like textiles. They like especially um, wool, uh, silk, um, those sorts of textiles. Uh, and so we have to be very aware uh, of moth activity. So we have moth traps uh, which we check regularly, um, and you know, make sure there's no moths or any other kinds of beetles um, that would that would damage the collection. Um, and you know, also part of the care is good documentation. So there's no point in having 10,000 objects if you don't know where they are. Um, and so, you know, a big part of our work is making sure that everything is correctly located. We do audits. Re-
regularly to make sure that everything is where we think it is um, and we keep uh, digital records as well as paper records just so that we we have we keep track of everything so it's that kind of holistic um, care and understanding of the objects also of course when we loan things or when we display things we think very carefully about the specific um, care requirements of the objects so for example some things like stained glass um, you know we have to be very careful about how they're packed how they're transported and how they're displayed so that's a case of working together with conservators um, and with you know transport agents and uh, the lenders to make sure that the objects are kept and shown in the best conditions possible how much of the collection is on display at any one time so visitors to the gallery can see about 500 objects on display at any one time. Um, we have the permanent galleries that are relatively stable, although we do change objects in and out from time to time. You know, if we get something new, such as the Bessie Burden embroidery that I spoke about, that's been recently put on display. If an object goes on loan, then of course that will go off display and we'll replace it with something else. Uh, so it slightly fluctuates, but it's about 500 objects. Um, so as I mentioned, it's about 10,000. So that is what, 120th of the collection? It's about 5% of the collection that's on display. That doesn't actually sound like very much, um, but actually for, for the vast majority of museums that do have permanent collections, uh, that's about a representative number. Um, and in fact, for some very large museums like the V&A and British Museum, uh, I would imagine that the amount of objects on display is actually closer to kind of two or three uh, percent. So, you know, it's something that all museums have, um, all large museums have. Uh, actually, what you are able, able to show within the space that you've got is only quite a small proportion of the objects that you actually have. And how do you decide which objects go on display? Um, it varies. It's, it's the balance between wanting to show the kind of, you know, the best, the most famous, the most interesting objects, um, but also to show the, the lesser known, the more unusual, the kind of more unexpected objects. So it, it's certainly about kind of, you know, a, a sort of greatest hits and crowd pleasing uh, sort of display, but also, you know, showing things that perhaps the general public aren't aware of. There's also conservation concerns. So especially for textiles and works on paper, um, both of which can fade when exposed to light. It's important not to keep these objects on display for too long. Uh, so there's as a rotation system based on the fact that um, objects shouldn't have you know, a huge um, period of exposure uh, because light certainly does take its toll after a long time. You know, you should never have an object on display for 20, 30 years because that, that's very detrimental to its well-being. So it's a balance between wanting to show people the very best, uh, but also wanting to make sure that those objects are conserved and that they will be able to be displayed again in 20, 30, 50, 100 years time, um, that we don't exhaust them now. So it, it varies. You know, there is also some practical concerns. Um, you know, for example, space. We do have a couple of objects that are fantastic, but they're just too big to show in any space in the gallery. So uh, unfortunately, you know, in, unless they go on loan to an institution that has an enormous exhibition hall, they're just too big for us to, to display. So there are certainly some practical concerns as well. Um, but generally, you know, it's what we think will be most appealing. It's what's in good physical condition. Uh, and it's what we think is interesting to tell the story of Morris's work. You obviously have unrivaled access to the William Morris Gallery collection. You know it really well. 
Are there any objects that stand out for you as real favourites? Um, well, I kind of feel a curator should be a bit like a parent in the sense that you don't have a favourite child, so you shouldn't also have a favourite object because my job is to look after them all equally. However, I do have a real soft spot for Philip Webb. I think some of his early designs especially um, are really great examples of the simplicity of design, the honesty of construction and the clarity of thought that went into the early pioneering work of Morrison Co. So for example, Webb's Sussex Chair, which is a very early um, example, but also one of the most successful products ever sold by Morrison Co. And also Webb designed um, some glassware, some drinking glasses for Morris's Red House. And that's the house that he and Jane, his wife, lived in when they were first married. And the, this glass goblet is just so simple, it's so refined, it's so elegant, uh, and it's the kind of thing that you could have on your dinner table today and it would look perfect. I'm also a really big fan of Morris's design drawings. Um, so Morris uh, designed, you know, all manner of things, and but his pattern drawings, um, which are works on paper, designs for other objects that would then be turned into embroidered um, hangings or um, printed cottons, you know, a variety of different things, are really stunning, and they show his design process. They show the the way by which the designs went from his mind's eye into an object via a sheet of paper. They're really fantastic and they show the quickness and the fluidity of his design process. Uh, I also really like um, McMurdo, Arthur Haygate McMurdo's um, designs for Century Guild. So these are a little more in the sort of um, Art Nouveau um, style, if you could say that. They're a little more um, stylized perhaps uh, a little less naturalistic than morris's design drawings um, but there's some fantastic designs for textiles in particular that really show his skill and confidence as a designer and the way that the british arts and crafts movement uh, sort of expanded and um, evolved in the early 20th century thank you very much rasheen that was really interesting uh, i've learned loads and i hope our listeners have too That brings us to the end of the first episode of WMG Unlocked. Next time we'll be looking at how the gallery tells the story of Morris's life, starting with his time at Oxford. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please do tweet us. We're at WM Gallery, or you can drop us an email. The address is on our website, wmgallery.org.uk. Thank you for listening.